Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to Deep Dish Radio. I'm Tim Powers, and this is my show. My guest today is uh, author Brad Schreiber, who has... uh, published an updated edition of his fantastic book on the theory of comedy. It's called What Are You Laughing At? How to Write Humor for Screenplays, Stories, and More. And um, you may remember Brad as he is the co-author of of Where's My Fortune Cookie? Phil Proctor's uh, memoir uh, about his his amazing career. But uh, Brad contacted me about this book and I, I hadn't read it yet. But I saw that it was endorsed by Larry Gelbart, the writer and creator of MASH. And I thought, well, that's good enough for me. And then I read the book. And I was absolutely enchanted. So if you are interested in learning how to write funny and um, you know, use principles developed in uh, Brad's UCLA Extension Writer Program class on humor writing... And, uh, and learn from a master screenwriter who has written some of the funniest things you have ever seen, uh, I encourage you to pick up What Are You Laughing At? By, uh, by Brad Schreiber. And we will get to Brad in just a little bit. But before that, uh, I want to thank everybody who has, uh, who has tuned into Deep Dish Radio recently. There have been uh, quite a few uh, new developments. We've seen a spike in, uh, in traffic and subscriptions recently, so I'm very happy to uh, welcome a lot of our new listeners and wanted to tell you about the Deep Dish Radio Facebook page. There actually is uh, a fan site for, for Deep Dish Radio. And recently we have picked up a lot of new fans, including some of these folks that I want to tell you about them now. Caleb S. O'Neill, Thorsten Hemmerlichs, Kathy Riggs-Williams. Kathy is uh, one of Deep Dish's <laughs> best evangelists. Kathy, thank you for, for letting everybody know about us. The very funny Courtney Cronin-Dole, uh, Vito Lapicola, my dear friend, and uh, Christine Carlson-Wolf, Edgar Guerrero, uh, Jeff Abram, fantastic fella, and, uh, and Sven Sobin have all come to the uh, Deep Dish Radio Facebook page recently and, uh, and given us a like. And if you do the same thing, I will, uh, I will mention you right here on the show. Just head over to your Facebook page and then punch in Deep Dish Radio. Hit like, and, uh, and we'd love it. You can, also, uh, you can also communicate with me there. If there's a guest you'd like me to, uh, to interview, let me know. See if, uh, see if we can make a connection. Uh, there's also the, uh, the Deep Dish Radio Twitter feed. Uh, at Deep Dish Radio. Check that out because every now and then I uh, chime in with something interesting and promote the show there. Uh, would love to interact with you there. Thank you so much for, uh, for listening. This is, 
uh, a fun project for me, and I'm glad that you are along for the ride. Brad Schreiber, my guest today, in addition to writing What Are You Laughing At, has written several books, uh, including uh, Where's My Fortune Cookie, co-written with uh, the great Phil Proctor, Revolution's End, uh, a book about the Patty Hearst kidnapping, mind control, and the secret history of Donald DeFries and the SLA, uh, Becoming Jimi Hendrix, fantastic book about, uh, well, it's a biography of, uh, of young Jimi Hendrix's life before he became Jimi Hendrix. Um, I guess he's always been Jimi Hendrix, but before he became the Jimi Hendrix we know. Uh, this one's kind of fun. Death in Paradise, an illustrated history of the Los Angeles County Department of the Coroner. Yep, there you go. It's a fantastic book. Uh, I enjoyed my conversation with Brad very much, and, uh, to, I encourage you to pick up uh, if you're interested in being funny or you're interested in why things are funny, pick up What Are You Laughing At? You know, there are several reasons why you should pick up What Are You Laughing At? Not only is it a great book on the science of comedy and uh, and the, the concept of thinking funny and how that works, but there's also a fantastic bibliography with a list of some of the funniest movies ever made, some of the most clever writing ever collected, and it's it's a list that if you're interested in what's really funny, uh, I encourage you to check out those lists. That's in What Are You Laughing At? Available wherever you get your books by Brad Schreiber. And now, here's the man himself. So, Brad, I, I finished reading What Are You Laughing At? Uh, a couple days ago. It took me a while to uh, to to get through it, but as a uh, as a stand up as a as a comedian as a as a humorist myself it was really interesting to see the process of humor the 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 breakdown of why things are funny and how they get to a new year is full of surprises but one thing is always predictable postage costs go up stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take care of orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code program. How they are constructed funny in a, a scientific but not antiseptic way. You Throughout the book, <laughs> you have a, a very interesting way of breaking down the science. I'm going to use the term comedy, the science of comedy into uh, into bite-sized pieces so that even the most intellectual and square person can find a way to, be, a way funny. to be funny. Um, you know, I have thought about uh, Carson's rule of three, right? It's mm -hmm. two rights and a left. And you extrapolate that into uh, into a, a formula, not a, not a formula from the from the most scientific sense, but you really break down why things are funny and you provide examples 
Um, I thought it was uh, two wrongs make a right. There. No, I guess <laughs> two I had it wrong all this time. Two wrongs don't make a right, but but three lefts do. Um, yeah, that's right. And uh, that's correct, I should say. <laughs> I'm the mad scientist of of comedy writing. Actually, I'm not, I'm not a pure scientist, but you know, Larry Gelbart, who I consider the greatest comedy writer of all time, because he wrote in every form. Yeah. I was lucky to meet him, and he gave me such a nice blurb without even knowing me, and said, "Finally, a how-to by somebody who actually knows how to." That you know, I, I was trying to get around using Larry's quote directly because no one says any. I, I can't cop Gelbart's uh, phraseology for my own. That's really the most succinct way to summarize this book. I've read a lot of books on comedy writing by a lot of people, and yeah. this is this is really one. Um, if 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 you're like, how do people be funny? This is a great way to do it. Tell me about well, yeah. what inspired the creation of this book. Why does this book exist in the first place? Sure, sure. But uh, if I can just tag team on, on Larry a little more, because yeah. for those people who love comedy and who, like you, are professionals, I, I think you should look into his work. And he had a saying, Tim, um, you don't have a sense of humor. It has you. It's almost like you walk through life and you see things differently. You see possibilities where other people see nothing. Right. So, you know, it's, it's what I refer to in What Are You Laughing At as the skewed vision. Not the screwed vision, the <laughs> skewed vision. Where you just see everything a little bit, you know, off kilter. Right. right. So years ago, I was teaching at uh, UCLA Extension. I had a humor writing class. And I, I loved inventing um, exercises. And one of the exercises um, that eventually got into what are you laughing at was about embarrassment, because I've always felt that embarrassment is one of the building blocks of comedy. You're absolutely and so right. so what I would do is I'd, the first day of the class, I'd ask everybody what their most embarrassing moments were. And what I learned is most people think the same about what embarrassment is, but it shocked me because one guy was a um, paramedic and just to show you how much work I had to do with this guy. Yeah. He said, my most embarrassing moment is the time there was a fire in Malibu and we had to go to a house and there were these burnt bodies inside and we had to pull them out and they started falling apart and the EMTs and the firemen started laughing. And I looked around the room and everybody in the room looked like they were going to throw up. And I thought, great. I have lost my comedy writing class in the first two minutes by this guy who thinks that dead burned bodies are hilarious. And right. now everyone's going to walk out and go, I want Brad Schreiber fired from UCLA. So I explained to the student, uh, gently, of course, you know, not everybody might agree with you that something that terrible is funny. He said, yeah, but we see all this dark stuff all the time. Yeah. So to protect ourselves, that's what we think is funny. So I have to say, by the end of the, of the class, this guy wrote a final piece that truly was the funniest thing. Everybody cracked up at it. And it was about an evil supervillain with an eye patch, stroking an Angora cat who was fat and greasy, and coincidentally named Brad Schreiber. <laughs> and everybody loved this guy's writing. And I thought to myself, you know that old adage, Tim, where you can't teach people to be funny? Yeah. It's wrong. Because here's a guy who thought that uh, broken bodies were hilarious. 
and everybody else was ready to vomit. And by the end of the class, he got it. He got it. This is not the perspective of most people. And he became a very good comedy writer. And so the UCLA class inevitably led to, um, what are you laughing at? Wow. So, the, and, and the, uh, yeah, that's, that's the thing about this book is every, every chapter is punctuated with uh, these fantastic exercises, which even as a, a seasoned comedian, uh, you know, um, I, I, I thought it was fun just to, just to take a minute and uh, like, I didn't take a notebook and, and write them down, but I'm like, all right, how would I address each of these, uh, each of these exercises? And they were, they were so much fun. They were so much fun. Um, exactly. If it isn't fun, why are you doing it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, comedy, you know, the the people who choose to uh be funny have it in their bones, you know. It just it just come there are people who are just genetically predisposed to being funny and looking at things in a funny way. Um and then there are people that aren't. Um thank goodness for them because they laugh at us. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but but writing the exercises and testing them out, of course, in class, and seeing which ones uh, got the greatest responses. Like, for example, I talk about funny character names. And I had had exercises at UCLA where I'd say, you know, come up with um, goofy-sounding names for a porn star, a new-age speaker, a mob enforcer. Right. And that was really great. But then um, I was watching television one day. I was watching um, National Hockey League. And there are a lot of foreigners in the NHL. Right. And, you know, and Adam Deadmarsh has the puck, <laughs> you know, and he's going, oh, it looks like Ziggy Palfy's been bashed in the ground. <laughs> like, these names are insane. Right. Ziggy Palfy. Yep. Jonathan Chichu. Okay, so now for people who are listening and know the NHL, they're, they're saying, well, these guys haven't been in the NHL for years, Brad. Well, that's true. Well, the original um, version of What Are You Laughing At was written a while ago, and this is an updated, revised version. But I realized, my God, there's no excuse for not coming up with a good character name. All you have to do is watch an NHL game. Yeah. This, uh... so, um, or, read, or read a book by Thomas Pynchon, you know, who in Gravity's Rainbow yeah. has the most amazing character names. Um like um, René de la Perlimpimpin, you know, the, the main character in, in um, that book is named Tyrone Slothrop. <laughs> you know, there's like, no excuse for calling somebody Jim Smith and thinking that people are going to chuckle. It's uh, Charles Dickens meets uh, Groucho Marx. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And in some sense, it's also about alliteration. It's recognizing that the sounds of words sometimes create a response and it's not clever it's not wit it's just the sound i have a little section in what are you laughing at called yiddish sound theory because you know everybody right. remembers the sunshine boys and uh you know the right. old vaudevillians sitting around going ah oh, pickle's funny because it's a strong hard sound p pickle you know well it's true hard consonants are are more engaging than uh other other sounds right so sometimes what what you've written that gets a response is almost inexplicable but it kind of works and that's why i've i've coined yiddish sound theory i don't think the smithsonian institute believes in it but i certainly do not yet they don't 
but uh, I, I think there's it's time. It's all a matter of time. Yeah, it really yeah. is. And, and the funnier Washington gets, the more they will embrace uh, the theory of comedy. <laughs> Well, it's funny, before you ask your next question, yeah. it's so funny that you should bring up, or so tragically funny that you should bring up Washington, D.C., because you, uh, I did my homework, and I noticed that you had on a woman recently who sends poop to people. Yes. So you've got to get that woman to organize so that people around the country can send poop to Donald Trump, <laughs> because... As you know, recently, since that show, he yes. has referred to certain nations as S-holes. You can say, you can say so, the word. You can say the word. Can I? I mean, yeah. I don't want the FCC to come down FCC on you. has nothing to do with me yet. No. Yeah, yet. All right. So, so Donald Trump has yet lowered the bar even farther and, and referred to certain countries as shitholes. Yep. This is a perfect opportunity to say, no, your mouth is the shithole, and here's a remembrance of what you have done to the name and the image of the United States of America. Brad, what a beautiful perspective. What a beautiful perspective. Oh. So set, don't forget to send those packages, kids. There you go. <laughs> See, my, my take on it was um, that the one good thing that came out of this presidency is that, uh, that he has reduced Carlin's list by one word. <laughs> there you go. You know? Although it's it's really bizarre, Tim, because I read an article saying the FCC has complained, not fined, but complained about CNN and other stations saying shithole on the air. Quoting the but president the FCC, of the United States. Yeah, but what are they going to do? They're quoting the president. So you can't say that they did it vindictively or had some insane guest who went on a rant. They're quoting the president. So the FCC is complaining but can't actually sue the stations, which is yet another permutation of how absurd it is. It, it just gets it gets more ridiculous. And uh, I'll tell you, I, I am really looking forward to seeing who the Will Rogers of this generation is, mm, um, yeah. you know, who's, who's got some teeth. And thank goodness there's some some we've returned to smart political comedy uh, again. Yeah. Um, you know, let's. On, on one yeah, well, we've got the coal bears of the world, um, you know, to give us comfort when we wake up in the morning and turn on the computer and go, oh, my God, I get a newsletter called WTF just happened um, since uh, you say we can say whatever words we want. Yeah, it's short for, of course, what the fuck just happened today. Right. And they synopsize all the horrible stuff that happened in Washington. Um, so that you can get your daily dose of misery and then kind of get it out of your system and go on with the day. It's very convenient, bite-sized bits of misery, and they summarize very nicely all the horrible executive orders and things that have been done. It is, uh, well, that makes your book even more timely right now, Brad, because as uh, as people digest the uh the uh swirling rotation of the toilet bowl that we're all in right now <laughs> or try and digest yeah yeah the uh, the the ability to cock your head a little bit and look at it um with with satire or with a sense of humor or with a um with that comedic shrug suddenly becomes very important and if you get your hands on Brad Schreiber's book what are you laughing at uh, it will give you a, a different way to uh, to look at the news, so that inst you know instead of uh, instead of just digesting it, instead of just accepting it, um, 
you know, there's, um, there's a way to look at it. One of the great things that I, that I took away from this book, um, was it's really kind of, uh, a manual for critical thinking, which is something sorely lacking in our, in our culture right now. Yeah. Well, you know, it was Samuel Langhorne Clemens, you know, Mark Twain, who said that, you know, analyzing comedy is like dissecting a frog. Well, yeah and no. You know, you can overanalyze anything, but you've got to know some rules. And the most basic rule, you know, in the book, which I refer to as humor's tumors, <laughs> is uh, don't, don't be cliched and don't be meek. And what I found in teaching people and consulting with people today is whenever I make a comment about revising something that they're writing that, that's comedy, they just came up with the first idea. And the first idea may sound familiar or it might sound, you know, kind of blasé or, or cliché. They, they needed to go to the third or the fourth idea. And they didn't work hard enough to dig down deep and go for something really unique. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, a lot of my friends who have come up to me and said, hey, I got this joke for you. And it's a it's you know, they are. They're not comedians. They're, you know, concrete salesmen or whatever. And they're like, hey, I, th- I thought of this thing and it's funny. And and uh-huh. and, and I, I give them the grace of, yeah, you're right. That is funny. Let's take it a step further, you know. Good. And, uh, and then they get it. And they're like, oh, all right, yes, it is suddenly much funnier. Um, well, look, you, you know, as, as a comedy guy, that everybody goes, hey, I've got a funny idea. Hey, guess what? I've got a computer. I'm a writer. I got a set of paints. I can do the Sistine Chapel. Yeah. Okay, great. But watch out for your back. You know. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's a, it's a long job, and you need to put some work in. Look, I'll give you a perfect example. Yeah. What are you laughing at? So, um, all worth publishing at Skyhorse in New York um, published this book, and um, my publisher contacted me and said, "You know what? We found out there's another book called What Are You Laughing At." So I go on Amazon, and I see that it is a very dry book. It came out a few years ago. It's very academic. came out only in the U.K. So I write back to the publisher. I said, don't worry about it. You know, my book came first. That book has no distribution in the U.S. No, we want you to change the name of your book. I said, but this is a revised version, you know. If you change the name of it, it's not going to have any correlation to the first book. Right. No, we want a new title. So then I thought, okay, look, make them happy, work really hard, and come up with an even better title. So it took me a long time, Tim, and finally, after literally many hours of racking my brains, I came up with, is this some kind of joke? And I sent it to him. (laughs) And God love him, my publisher, wrote back and said, I don't think that's funny. You don't think it's funny? You don't think it's funnier than what are you laughing at? What do you? Well, our marketing department has been talking about a title for your book, Brad, and we think how to write funny would be a much better title. Oh my God! How to write funny is better than is this some kind of joke? No, we're going back to the original title. So you, you know, it's God, funny. Lo- God love them. They published the book. Yeah, that's what they do. This is what I do. Let's all do what we do best. 
you would think the English book would know better than to end their question with a preposition. But beyond that, <laughs> no, what are you laughing at? Like I said, is, is um, you know, it becomes an exercise in not only critical thinking, but, uh, but comedy as well. And, um, you know, it, it really, you, you go into a lot of places um, with regard to, with regard to comedy um you know th that a lot of people don't uh and you don't one of the things that you avoid is the cliche of the the troubled comedian you know one of my favorite lines about comedy came from wc fields where if you want to make a regular person laugh you dress up like an old lady and fall down a flight of stairs huh. but, but if you want to make a comedian laugh you push an old lady down a flight of stairs <laughs> you know it's good well yeah. it, it goes to your point where you take it a step farther yeah. Well, Margaret Atwood, whose uh, Handmaid's Tale is now a big hit on Hulu. Right. Um, and is not a comedy writer by any means. Very dramatic writer, writes dystopian novels. Um, had a great saying where she um, said, um, you know, if you have a fat person who falls down, it might be funny. But if you have a person who's starving and wearing ragged clothes who falls down, it's probably not going to make anyone laugh. So in her own way, she understands about perspective and distance and giving people permission yeah. to laugh versus making them so uncomfortable they can't. And, and who am I to counsel people? I had a comedy group called the Burlingame Philharmonic Orchestra <laughs> years ago yeah. in the San Francisco Bay Area, right. which people thought was a music group and not a comedy group. And we did such bizarre fire sign theater type material that people were like, these guys are crazy. We want to laugh, but they're going 100 miles an hour. So we learned um, the limitations of what we wanted to do in comedy clubs by doing material that was so out there. Yeah. You, and uh, that's a good segue to, I guess, writing Phil Proctor's book with him because we were enamored of Firesign Theater yeah. so much that instead of doing stand-up in, in a bar with drunken people... We were doing fire sign theater type three man, thousand mile per hour comedy, and some people got it, and other people went, "These guys are clinically insane. Get them to a hospital." <laughs> or, or I, I don't, I don't get it. Yeah, it's yeah. Playing to drunks is uh, is one of the challenges of comedy, and you guys certainly made it uh, difficult on yourself. <laughs> um, we, we did, but in, in a sense, like fire sign. Uh, we worked best when we did radio um, or when we recorded stuff. Um, we were more theater comedy than we were stand-up. Yeah. And um, we learned that when we uh, performed at Winterland Arena, opening for Santana, and the mics were feeding back and no one could understand a single word we said, and we were nearly killed. Um <laughs> <laughs> That's a... Yeah, well, yeah, we we ruined it for all comedians in the Bay Area to perform at Bill Graham Presents events. Uh, um, I, I am yeah, I am now jealous. Pride. I am now completely jealous of of uh, not you know you've done so much in a in a in a storied career, but guy you were you were on Bill Graham's stage, and uh, that just it sounds well, it's as legendary as it is. Well, I was I was in a box office waiting to be paid for that gig from yeah. my Burlingame Philharmonic Orchestra days, and there was a seven-year-old boy counting out money, 
there was Jerry Pompili, the head of A&R for, for Bill Graham. Right. And there was Bill Graham on the phone swearing at somebody. Listen, you motherfucker, I'm going to rip your head off. And then he hangs up, and Jerry goes, hey, uh, Bill, this is Brad Schreiber from the comedy group. And Bill Graham stands up. I think he's going to, like, punch me in the face. Yeah. And in the softest possible voice, he goes, oh, nice to meet you. Thanks very much. Uh, I enjoyed having you. <laughs> Ten seconds before, he sounded like he was going to rip somebody's intestines out. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, in a man. tiny room. In a tiny room that, you know, was about five shoulders wide. You know? It was just bizarre. You but know, he was a legend. He was an yeah. impresario, and he changed the nature of, well, certainly rock and roll in the Bay Area, and uh, they took a chance on comedy, and like I said, Tim, we ruined it for everybody. Well, you did and you didn't, and but your your career brings an interesting point to mind, and it's something that has fascinated me since I was really five years old, which is the correlation, the intersection of rock and roll and comedy. Now, to put this in perspective, I was five years old in 1974. Um, the, the first season of Saturday Night Live, and I had uh, I had older brothers who were hip enough to you know let, let me stay up and watch Belushi do Joe <laughs> Cocker, right? And I mean, yeah, nineteen seventy five, seventy five was the first season. Right, right, yes, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. So I'm six. Um, so at that time, pouring into my little my little subconscious brain is uh -huh. my older brother's uh, mother's albums and and Little Feet. And uh, and the first season of Saturday Night Live, uh, after school I come home and the monkeys are on, um, and there's this intersection of of popular music, rock and roll, and comedy, and your career kind of kind of weaves through that as well. What do you think the through line is? What do you think the the common denominator is for? Uh, for for rock music and comedy because it didn't work with uh, other than Lenny Bruce it didn't really work with jazz and it certainly you know other than a few comic operas there's not that correlation with um, with classical music yeah. and comedy it just seems to be uh, part of rock and roll's DNA yeah well there are there are always exceptions to the rule but there aren't many exceptions to the rule you want to talk about classical music and and humor you you're talking about Peter Shickley P. Yeah. Q Bach right. Um, you want to talk about jazz and comedy. You're talking about Lord Buckley, you know, hipsters and flipsters yeah. and finger-popping daddies. But um, and, I think And Spike Jones, yeah. But... Oh, yeah, and Spike Jones, I don't know how you describe his music, but it was, um, it was very much like The Goon Show, which, again, influenced Firesign Theater, as, yeah. as you know from talking to Phil Proctor. Right. But... I think that the common denominator is breaking rules and expanding boundaries. In comedy, Lenny Bruce and, and to a great extent, uh, George Carlin um, are the guys who have most expanded stand-up comedy in terms of language in, in history. Which leads me to my favorite little anecdote about Carlin. Yes. You know, Carlin saw, you probably know this story, as a lot of comedians do, he was watching Lenny Bruce perform on Broadway in North Beach. Right. And and he got busted as he did more than once. Sure. And Carlin was so enamored of what Lenny Bruce was doing as a fledgling comedian that he threw himself in the back of the paddy wagon as they were taking Bruce away. Right. And there he is being arrested. Lenny Bruce has no idea who he is. He goes, What are you what are you doing? What are you doing in here? 
And George Carlin, I've seen him say this uh, in an interview. He said, I turned to Lenny Bruce and I said, I think you're so amazing at, that I couldn't let you be arrested by yourself. And Lenny looked at him and said, schmuck. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I do love that those story. Two guys, yep. Those two guys changed the nature of comedy forever. Those two guys, yeah. You, you you throw in Richard Pryor, and you've got oh, yeah. you know you've got the the comedy equivalent of the class of '54. You know, well, you, you've got well the guys. Said, that you know, and Pryor is Pryor is um, a guy who people like Dave Chappelle um, owe so much to because they changed the nature of of how we talk about race in comedy. Yeah, and how you make the most uncomfortable things about racism in America. Things you can laugh at and yet are incisive. Chris Rock, uh, I, in my opinion, is a guy who's also done that remarkably well. Yes, yes, and and open the dialogue. You know that um, you yeah. know guys like Richard and and Dick Gregory kind of touched on, uh, mm-hmm. well, or actually they kicked the door down so that we could have this dialogue now, fifty years later. Yeah, Dick Gregory to see every every time I say these are the two guys. Well, okay, these are the three guys. Well, I mean, that's what happens when you get two comedy nerds in a conversation. You know, yeah. we start we start digging deep, and you're like, "Oh yeah, well, what about Phil Foster?" And you're like, "Phil Foster, what?" <laughs> you know, like the oh, most yeah, obscure yeah. comedian you can think of. You're like, "Oh yeah, Ben it's Blue like, was funny." And uh, Ben Blue, who the hell is Ben Blue? It's like, yeah, it's like uh, I don't know. It's like Monty Python. Our two chief weapons are fear, fear and surprise, and a ruthless. Of that. Three. There are three main weapons. <laughs> right. It's very much like that. You keep coming up with yet another name. Yeah, and you can do that with and, rock and roll, too. You're like, oh, well, the best guitarist, of course, of all time is Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, well, what about Clapton? Okay, Clapton. What about Jimmy Page? Well, okay, Jimmy Page, Eric Clapton. So what you do is you drill down and you go, okay, the guy who controlled feedback better than anybody else in rock and roll is Jimi Hendrix. Right. Okay? And then you go, oh, the guy who, who played the most soulful blues or whatever, you know, that's what you have to do. I, and this is a nice segue for me, I yep. co-wrote uh, Becoming Jimi Hendrix with a, a Hendrix historian named Steve Roby, who had spent his entire adult life collecting material and information about Hendrix, especially the early years. And his agent in New York said, this is an amazing book, but you don't know how to write. Go find somebody else to write it with you. And he came to me because I had uh, written about a previous book of his. And so I did a page one rewrite of his material. And, you know, New York Times gave us glowing reviews and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you know, selected for their library. And I not only loved Hendrix's music, I came to understand what a phenomenal human being he was. Very spiritual, not willing to rule out any kind of music. I mean, this is a guy, Tim, who was listening to Dick Dale surf music and going, oh man, how does he do that? This is a guy who was going to record with... um, Everybody. I mean, he, there's a recording of him, uh, a bootleg recording of him in a studio with John McLaughlin. Yeah, I've heard that. Um, and Miles was the only musician at his funeral. Miles and he were going to record together. So, so Jimmy was a guy who could hear any type of music and see the value in it yeah. and adapt it. And that, to me, is real genius. 
by all accounts, he was a funny guy, too. Uh, had a, a very wicked sense of humor. Oh, absolutely. He was very offbeat, and I interviewed his, uh, his brother, Leon Hendricks, who lives here in Los Angeles. And he's no, he's no Jimi Hendrix in terms of playing guitar, but he's got that sly, funny sense of humor. Yeah. And, um, and just beautiful stories, touching stories about their really difficult upbringing in Seattle, where the mother died early and the father was gone. And Jimmy was basically protecting his little brother. And some days they woke up in a house with no electricity or food, and they would walk through the neighborhood. Yeah. And um, people would say, did you eat today? Why don't you come in here? We'll give you something. It was a, just a Dickensian, horrible childhood. And yet, look what he made of himself. Look what he made of himself. And, and I mean, the fact that we're talking about his music almost 50 years after he left us, which makes us both feel old, um, <laughs> You know, is well, I, I feel there. I feel old every day when I get out of bed. I don't need to talk about Jimi Hendrix. To feel old. <laughs> That's the truth. That's the truth. But, yeah, I, but I'm like you. I mean, I know this is mostly about comedy, and I do want to talk about Phil Proctor and Firesign, who were my idols as well. Yeah. But I grew up in the Bay Area, Tim, and uh, went to San Francisco State and Burlingame High School, and I'm old enough and lucky enough to have lived in a place where underground FM radio was born. Oh, KFAN. here we go. Light that match. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> light that match. Yeah. Yeah, instead of the cell phone, light the match. Well, um, yeah, I could talk forever about uh, about how great radio used to be, you know, and the fact that you had, you know, the, the underground radio um, that started in, in San Francisco and then took off um, – actually resonates in my life, but this, this show's about yeah. you today. Um, you, your time in the Bay Area was really kind of a hotbed of many, many things, but but especially comedy. There was you guys. There was the committee. There was all kinds of things going on. Tell, yeah. me, tell me about those days. What happened? There, was a, there were lots of obscure comedy groups that no one's ever heard of. Let me assure you, um, you know, that was the great thing. And really, maybe the... The whole point about talking about KSAN and KLSX is that the jocks would come in and bring in their records, and they weren't one type of record. You could hear Odetta, then you could hear Vanilla Fudge, then you could hear The Monkees or you know some other you know happy pop music, then you could hear J.B. Lenoir singing the blues. You go. My God, there's no playlist. These guys just play whatever they want. And it exposed you to so many different kinds of music. And then you also got the personalities of the disc jockeys. And this is before corporate control of radio. So it was a great education for a little fat, you know, pre-teenage meatball like me to listen to my sister's FM radio, because I didn't have one yet, and hear all these different kinds of music. Plus, my parents, I will give them credit because my father had a huge collection of classical music, and my mother had what wasn't even called then world music, Miriam Makiba, yeah. um, Theodore Bikel, all these different groups um, from around the world. And I was exposed to all this different kind of music before I got to hear crazy, wonderful Jimi Hendrix doing Third Stone from the Sun. 
and it was a great education. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, the the uh, the underground radio guys um it was it was so fascinating. The guys who started the the underground stations in in San Francisco moved to the took the idea and came to the Midwest and they launched in 1967 uh a station in St. Louis, KSHE, which is still on the uh-huh. air. And when it was not corporately owned, it was as close to the Midwest got to the magic that you heard, where you never knew what you were going to hear. You'd hear Bolero followed by, uh, you know, followed by Miles, and then you know, yeah. um, and then the Moody's, right? Yeah. And um, and yeah. the Jacks brought their own personality to it, and it was cool, and it was fun, and you know, every everything was uh, was a dis- like you. You couldn't wait to hear what was. You couldn't wait for the fade of the of the current song to hear what was next because it was fascinating. Yeah. And then, you know, if uh, and I would imagine you probably got the same thing. You got little little lectures by the jocks. You know, here's a uh, here's Miles, and this is what he was going through at the time when this was right, recorded. Right, they give a little biography of of what was happening or why they loved something. Yeah, but you know, all that is not to say that we don't live in remarkable times. I mean, can you imagine if we grew up with Spotify and we could listen to anything at any time or most anything, or we could listen to podcasts? You know, this is a golden age of talk podcasts, which you are part of, but it's also a a golden age of listening to people's lists of music. You know, whatever genre of music, you can can find a quote-unquote internet radio station for it. And that's a pretty wonderful thing. If people want to take advantage of it, they can really expand their their knowledge of music, comedy, authors yeah. um, through the internet. It's a great gift. Yeah, and thank you very much, uh, DARPA, De- Defense Advanced Research Projects. It's the only good thing the military ever gave America was the internet, and we thank you for it. <laughs> Okay, and beating the Nazis in World War. Beating II. the Nazis was good. The uh, the freeway system was was pretty solid too. Yeah, that's good. But uh, yeah, other than that, uh, those three. Okay, four. There. <laughs> there are four main reasons to like the Defense Department. <laughs> yeah. I figured I'd throw a call back in. Um, okay, so uh, but I do want to hear. Um, you know about the, the the comedy groups in 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 San Francisco and and what that scene was like. We got we got into the the underground radio kind of thing and and how um, you know open minded mm-hmm. it was and how interesting it was and how how mind blowing it was and and juxtapose well, that yeah. with now where people tend to live in the cliched echo chamber. You know they yeah. they they read the books that they've always read. They listen to the music they've always listened mm-hmm. to. They listen to the commentators that they always listen to. And um, you know anyone with an opposing viewpoint is is uh, feared or ignored. Um, <laughs> and that this is true. And it, and it wasn't true. always like that, man. <laughs> what? No, man. Back in the day um, when marijuana was weaker. Um, listen, there there are both advantages and disadvantages of every era. So back in the day, uh, excuse me for referring back to my obscure comedy group, the Burlingame Philharmonic Orchestra again, but it illustrates your point. We auditioned at a wonderful club on Bush Street called The Boarding House that existed for some years in San Francisco, a guy named David Allen owned. And we auditioned not to be on a program with a bunch of other comedians. We weren't living in a comedy condo with a bunch of other comedians we were auditioning to open for papa john creech 
the black, partially paralyzed violinist from the Jefferson Starship, which had been the Jefferson Airplane, who had his own band. So they went, let's, let's book comedy to open for this jazz, rock, blues kind of group. And that's how free and open-minded the clubs were. Uh, not to say there weren't comedy clubs where you only saw comedians. But that's kind of how the, the Burlingame Philharmonic got on the map, by going to an open audition, nailing it, and opening for Papa John Creech. And it, it was really interesting, the pairings. It, it, there's a corollary between underground FM rock and roll and, for a time, the amorphous quality of booking comedians with music groups in the Bay Area, and I'm sure other places, too. It was quite wonderful. Um, John McLaughlin, who I interviewed for Huffington Post, yeah. I write for them. He told me about how much he loved playing back in the day in the 70s with the Mahavishnu Orchestra. Because they wouldn't be booked with another jazz rock fusion band, Tim. They would be booked with a comedian or a blues group or a heavy rock group. And they let people decide, oh, that's interesting, I like that group. Or, no, I don't like that group, but I got to see the Mahavishnu Orchestra and I'm satisfied. Well, now we don't see those kinds of pairings and bookings. It's like, if you want to see rock and roll, you get to see rock. If you want to see country, um, alternate country band, then the next band playing with them is going to be an alternate country band. We're not going to expand your horizons. And that is one thing that I... I'll sound like an old cranky hippie and say it shouldn't have changed. There was something very valuable to it. Yeah, I tend to I tend to agree with the the old cranky hippies that uh, the there's there's so much out there, right? Uh, there's there's so much there's exposure to such fantastic things, and um, but you're you're missing the portal that that underground FM radio brought to that. Where yes, the time you, portal. Yes, um, where where you're exposed to things that you wouldn't ordinarily be because you're strapped in. You're you're yeah. you're strapped in and you're along for the ride. And you know that's how that's how I discovered uh, that's how I discovered jazz. That's how I discovered you know uh, you know deep uh, deep classic you know album cuts that you wouldn't you mm -hmm. wouldn't hear on top forty radio. Um, right. That, that's how I discovered Lenny. That's how I discovered you know the the '50s comedians, your New Hearts and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. And and those albums is because you know as a as a teenager in the 80s i was strapped in listening to this kind of stuff and it's it i i put myself in situations where it was fed to me you know that's mm -hmm. how i discovered fire sign was um was through I, I saw jamin forever on uh uh, uh on, TV, on tv right yeah and usa channel yes flight, no, night, night flight. flight yes what oh yeah, my god the world needs night flight again and, yeah yeah we, we we certainly do now now for me I was in college, San Francisco State, and um, my group loved Firesign Theater. And so we had a class where they said, um, you can put together a little 20-minute show of any material you want, whether you write it or other people wrote it. So, you know, me and two other buddies created, um, with a couple of other actors in the theater arts department, uh, Nick Danger, Third Eye. Nice! You stupid... Told, I ought to beat your brain out. You know, I basically, before I even met him, was 
mimicking the words of Phil Proctor's Rocky Rococo. <laughs> so, and it, it killed. So then we went, hey, this went really good. Maybe we should start a comedy group. And that's how Berlin Philharmonic and another group, which I called Friends of the Ozone, which people thought was an environmental group and was doomed to failure, um, came about. But then I had a friend who had an NPR uh, radio show about comedy in San Francisco called Looking for the Laughs. And Firestein used to come up every year to San Francisco to do a Halloween show. So I said to my friend Alex Adams, oh, my God, listen, I'll call their manager and we'll interview them and then we'll get to see their show. And I just hit it off with Proctor immediately. Cool. Um, and every year they would come up and do their Halloween shows. And then when I moved down to L.A., um, through a friend of mine who was an accountant, he was handling the, the account for Phil Proctor. <laughs> and I said, oh, my God, I'm going to just spring this on him. And, and we became friends. And then a few years ago, I said, Phil, isn't it about time you wrote those memoirs? And I hassled him and hawked him and twisted his arm and cajoled and any other word you can think of until we finally got him to uh, agree to do Where's My Fortune Cookie. And... You know, that book, you know, he won't blame me for saying that book was basically written in six months and then took three and a half years to convince him to release it. <laughs> <laughs> and now you and know of, the rest of the story. Yeah, the rest of the story. Yeah, I mean, it, it is kind of funny because when you work with people, especially people who you just adore, who are your idols, You've got to be very careful yeah. because the idolatry can get in the way of making the material as good as possible. And you also have to remember you're dealing with people who are famous and look back on their career and look back on their lives. And it's a very sensitive thing. If you wrote the memoirs of someone who no one ever heard of, you would still be dealing with someone who's going, is this important? Am I telling too much? Am I telling too little? Who have I left out? Who have I been unfair to? And this is, this is the domain of someone who, who co-writes memoirs and autobiographies. Yeah. And um, I, I'm really proud of the fact that Phil went to some places that most famous people would never go. And those, those sorts of things dealt with the problems within Firesign Theater as well as hilarious stories, which you got out of him wonderfully in your interview. Thank you. Yeah. And he, and he really went some great places. And, um, you know, also talking about extraterrestrial intelligence and spirituality, I was delighted he wanted to go there because I didn't want him to write a book that was just, oh, and then I met Groucho Marx, and uh, then there was Andy Kaufman outside, and then, you know, I didn't want that kind of book because I think it's superficial. Yeah. And you can go deeper. And the best memoirs and autobiographies, yeah, they drop names, but they have a theme. And Phil said, my theme is trying to, trying to explore the unknown and all these amazing coincidences. And I think you got that from him when you talked with him, that he really cares a lot about expanding consciousness. Yeah. Uh, and not just taking acid and smoking too much dope. He really cares about it. Yeah, I, I, I get that. And and the thing that, uh, I mean, if, you are, if you're a Firesign fan, 
um, having a linear book is not going to be congruent with your fire sign experience. And, mm -hmm. and the fact that Phil's stories kind of weave in and out in this, uh, in this narrative is very fire sign. You know, you guys did a masterful job making sure that it, that it was, it was like that. And, you know, you wouldn't expect a, a chronological narrative from, from somebody like Phil, especially since, uh, his, his concept was to explore the unknown and, and kind of, you know, you feel in that book, you feel like you're, you're being pulled along kind of on a, like a, like a theme park dark ride where you don't really know what's around the corner. Right. Right. Yeah. Very good. If you very read, good, yeah. if you read other tradition, more traditional, um, memoirs or, or, or autobiographies, you kind of know what's coming. Oh, McKinley's going to get shot at the end <laughs> with, with, you know, with Phil, you're like, Oh, what, what this happened too? And, and he gets into the, uh, to the, uh, psychology of everything. Brad, I'm curious about, yeah. and maybe, maybe this isn't the, the medium to talk about it, but it took three years to convince Phil to release this book. In your opinion, what was Phil's reluctance? Um, it's as I tried to describe earlier, he was, and I get this from anybody who writes their own autobiography or memoir, or sometimes even a biography of someone close to them. Do people want to read this? Am I, am I writing something that is self-aggrandizing and really no one will care? Which to me, I can understand it if it's someone going, I want to write about my grandfather who, who you know, was in World War II. Okay, you know, the guy was a hero, but, you know, is it well written and does it resonate for people? Phil Proctor has led a mind-boggling life. No kidding. And I couldn't, and I cannot understand how he doesn't see that it is such an amazing story. And uh, that was part of my job to say, trust me, you want to do this, you want to do it now, it's going to be great. And I'll also say that some of the smaller stories that weren't about hanging out with famous people, but really bizarre instances really made the book a joy for me. Like, I don't know if you, I don't think you talked about this. He used to do ads in LA with Firesign for a guy named Jack Poet, who owned a Volkswagen dealership in downtown LA. And they didn't have the money to pay Firesign for doing these hilarious commercials, right. which are available on YouTube, by the way, you can see them. So they paid them off, Tim, by giving them leased psychedelic painted Volkswagens to drive around town. Okay. You know, like one would have zebra stripes right. and you know, one would, would have fleur de lis. So Phil is driving around um, this Volkswagen. And then one day poor Jack Poe is going out of business and he drives onto the lot to see how Jack Poe's doing. And Jack Poe says, gee, I'm sorry, Phil, but we got to take your car back. We're going out of business. <laughs> I mean, these are the kinds of insane stories. <laughs> That, that have nothing to do with, with, with hanging out with Peter Fonda on the Sunset Strip during the riots. And that's a great story, too. Yep. But when he would come up with these obscure little things, uh, just my eyes lit up. Because they're, they're, they're great stories, and they, and they humanize, you know. Um, 
you know, you don't want to say Phil Proctor is the idol of millions because you and I know the guy and, and know what a human being he is. But to to those out there who are only yeah. familiar with <clears throat> Firesign albums, you, you know, yeah. you, you get that you get that star quality and it humanizes his uh, his story. Uh, Jack yeah. Poet Volkswagen, if I remember right, uh, is now in the, the or was in the Highland Park neighborhood, I think. That's and, right. And it it's, on it's now a CVS. Mm-hmm. I, I I live blocks from there, and and went and looked it up after I met Phil, and I'm like, where is this place? Oh, it's the CVS in Highland Park. Right, right. That's crazy. Uh, uh, there are so many funny stories or failed gigs, you know, where they would go somewhere. Um, did he tell you about the Bob Marley story? I don't think so. He didn't did tell, he tell me he, about the. He didn't tell me on the air, but he told me he told oh. me when we hung out. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So for your listeners, you know, the long and short of it is. Firesign Theater, again, in an era where comedy was booked with music, are opening for Bob Marley. And and Peter Bergman sees them smoking marijuana and says, hey, can we have some? So they give them a huge bag of marijuana that's stuck in a Boston bank bag. <laughs> and, and Proctor and Bergman smoke some of it before their show, and it's so strong that they forget what gender they are, right? And... Um, they do this gig, and no, but most of the people in the audience are there to listen to Marley. So it's mostly a Rasta crowd, and they have no idea what <laughs> Proctor and Bergman are talking about. And then at one point, there's a pause, and somebody in the crowd goes, What did that man say? <laughs> <laughs> Which they then use on one of their albums. Right. You hear somebody say, What did that man say? Which came out of... No one understanding what Procter and Bergman were talking about opening for Bob Marley in Boston. Okay, now, what celebrity is going to talk about a hilarious failure like that, except Phil Procter except and, Phil, yeah. and a few people like him? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so if, 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 uh, if the, the Deep Dish episode with Phil himself did not persuade you to read this book and buy all the Firesign records that you can get your hands on, uh, I'm hoping this does as well. Um, you know, we, we started talking about the nature of comedy. We started talking about what are you laughing at? Um, but you've got a couple other irons in the fire. Uh, let's talk about that Patty Hearst book before we wrap things up. All right. The long and short of revolutions end, which is subtitled the Patty Hearst kidnapping mind control and the secret history of Donald DeFries and the SLA is the untold story now told after 40 years, uh, notwithstanding all the other books and documentaries, of what really happened when heiress Patricia Hearst was kidnapped by a supposed left-wing group in 1974. And it is a mind-boggling and highly complex case. Um, I'm proud to say that Revolution's End has won a couple of international awards from the Independent Publishers Book Awards and the International Book Awards. And the, the basic idea is imagine that a black LAPD informant is thrown in prison, they use drugs on him, and they say, we'll let you out of prison if you create a phony left-wing group so that we can discredit the Black Panthers and all the white radicals who want to overthrow Nixon's America. And that black prisoner is Donald DeFreeze, who gets a bunch of white kids to follow him, even though he's an informant, and then kidnaps a former lover of his, Patricia Hearst, robs a bank, and inevitably six of them wind up in a shootout and fire. 
in Los Angeles and are killed by 500 law enforcement officers. And it changes the nature of the new left politically in America. So I knew about a lot of this when I lived in the Bay Area, Tim, and I came across the final piece of research. I went, you know, no one's ever going to know the real story unless I sit down and write this damn book. So um, radical politics is not a great seller. It's not like writing your self-help book or a book about cute puppies or something, but I had to do it. And I'm very proud that, you know, Revolution's End has, has garnered an audience and there's an audio book, and I even conduct a bus tour here in L.A. about it. And it's just a <laughs> remarkable book about the LAPD, the CIA, the Black Panthers, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, Jim Jones. Just an amazing, crazy story. Let's put it in uh, in context, Brad. What what you learned about the, the New Left and... Uh, and all of the machinations of the right changing the, you know, changing the left side of the political pendulum in, in 74, what kind of effect does that have on culture today? How, do, how are you seeing uh, ripples of that in the, in the political culture now? Well, people, people always ask me, you know, so it's basically hopeless. And I go, no, you know, there's something that's actually improved from 74, you know, we're we're certainly dealing with you know an era of fake news which is very dangerous because you don't know what to believe anymore and there's lots of disinformation um but the cia program called mk ultra which ran for 20 years in this country and experimented on prisoners and the mentally ill that no longer exists so thank god that era is over and also revolutions End talks about some of the terrible stuff that went on in Bay Area prisons, especially against black prisoners. Um, sometimes um, the people who ran the penitentiaries would get one prisoner to kill another. Uh, they used prisoners as informants and they would let them deal drugs, anything from marijuana to heroin. And the prisoner would get 30% of the money and the correctional officer would get 70 for them to be snitches within the prison. It was like the Wild West. And thank God that that doesn't exist anymore. There were prisoners who were ill who were not treated. That could never happen today because the prisoner literally could sue the institution and the state for not being given medical help. So a lot of the stuff in, in, in the 70s, which was absolutely terrifying, thankfully can't stand today. But the problem we're, we're fighting is certainly um, control of society and disinformation and you know obviously a manipulation of the press by yeah. people in dc and those are things that existed before terribly and unfortunately we still need to do a lot of work there but it's also kind of an amazing story and patty hearst winds up being a minor character in what really happened but the only reason anyone ever paid attention is because they thought a rich Eris was kidnapped by this evil left-wing group, and they had no idea that it was a blown police intelligence operation. Huh. All right. So, again, the title of the book? Revolution's End. Revolution apostrophe S. End. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it, it was a joy to finally write it after knowing the story for way too long. And um, it's, a, it's a wild read. And it also connects to what happens in Jonestown, 
and um, mentioned some heroes who most people aren't familiar with who did incredible work back in the 70s to try and make people aware of what was going on in the prisons and with the CIA. And I'm glad to acknowledge those people who are no longer alive who were real heroes. Their, their stories need to be told, and it's it's in this book. Um, you you said the, the our present is not hopeless. Tell me where where you, the guy who has seen so much of uh, so much of what you know happened in the Nixon administration and all the things that you've been through, yeah. and your you know your your former hippie lifestyle. What um, <laughs> you know what a uh, former for all I know you, you know your lifestyle may be very hippie right now. I don't know. Um, wh- well, I don't have enough hair to be a hippie anymore. Uh, <laughs> that's. <laughs> I got a joke about that in a bit, but, um, Uh and, um, but you know, to, for, uh, not to rip off the birds and Pete Seeger, but where's the hope for the future? Yeah. Well, ironically, I think part of the hope against what we're going through now is the court system. Um, you're seeing the court push back against certain things. Hey, I'll give you a, a positive news story for your listeners. Uh, North Carolina, um, they ruled that um, gerrymandering, which would control, you know, basically uh, a Republican-dominated uh, state legislature forever, is illegal. We've been waiting for some state uh, to have a court make a ruling on that. And now that they have, this is the beginning of the pushback. And I think there's going to be a huge, um, I think there's going to be a huge reaction in the midterms to what's been going on in this country. And I predict that um, there will be impeachment proceedings against Trump. And even if we don't get rid of him, there's going to be a backlash against the, the, the denigration of what it is to be an American. You know, the immigration stuff and the language and, um, you know, the, the clear prejudice. I think that while it makes clear that there are, are plenty of racist people in America, there's a lot of people who go, that's not why we came here. And guess what? You know, the English and the Irish came here just like the Haitians came here. Right. Everybody came here. And this is not what we're about. And inevitably, the court system and discuss with what's going on is going to change. The sad part, of course, is it's going to take a while. And a lot of people are going to suffer in the meantime. But um, I think when we go through every period of history, Tim, that is really dark, we always learn something. And we become a little bit more aware, a little bit more conscious. A little bit more enlightened, yeah. Yeah, and what we stand for. So if you can imagine the next America when Trump is no longer here, people are going to go, Oh, my God, do you remember when Trump was president and all the horrible stuff? Do you remember what he said about the Haitians and the Mexicans? We can't ever tolerate that again. So there are small incremental steps. This, this generation's Herbert Hoover. Um, yeah, it's, that's, that's really, really interesting. Uh, I, I, yeah, who, I would whoever love... would have thought, Tim, that Richard Nixon would look like Winston Churchill compared to Donald Trump? Man, you know? that's a joke, but that's not hyperbole. Uh, you're you're absolutely right. You know, you you think about like I watched the 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 movie about Jackie Kennedy came out a couple years right. ago. I watched it on TV the other day, and I'm like, you know, 
the adjective presidential used to have uh, this mm -hmm. this, for lack of a better term, regalness. You know, it was there. Right. There was some sort of. Uh, uh, there was a dignity to it. Dignity is exactly the word that I'm looking for. And, you know, it, Reagan, you know, I grew up in the Reagan administration and say what you will about the guy. He, you know, there was some there was some dignity and there was some uh, uh, there was some class to Ronald Reagan, despite everything he did. Um, and every president up to that point, even, uh, you know, Clinton, who, you know, the media portrayed as a good old boy from Arkansas, still had some dignity to him. And the guy was right. a, as a Rhodes Scholar. You know, right? Um, and uh, right. You know, there there was so much going on during the during the election. I'm like, there's no way, there's no way this is going to happen. There's no way this is going to happen. They're, oh my God, it happened. Yeah, well, he didn't even expect it was going to happen. By the way, I'm I'm reminded not that I like his politics anymore, but Dennis Miller had a great line back in the day about Clinton. Would everybody stop picking on Bill Clinton? For God's sakes, the guy's from Arkansas. He's already an overachiever. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, yeah, yeah. He grew up in a tiny town, and he didn't have a father. And, you know, uh, I don't know. You know, where would we be without corruption? Where would we be without theoretical questions? You know, uh, we're going to learn from this. Uh, it's just the process of knowing that a lot of Americans are going to suffer and having to roll back a lot of stuff with the next administration. That's, that's the really, really sad part. It's not that we always expect enlightened, brilliant men to lead us for every election cycle. We've got plenty of guys in the past who've shamed this country. But um, what are we going to learn from this, and how are we going to improve? That's what I'm concerned with, and that's why I'm looking to the midterms, and a lot of people are. Um, and it, it it could be a very valuable time for us. It could be. Let's hope. Yeah, let's hope. Brad, we are we are out of time. So, um, you know, What Are You Laughing At is available right now wherever you get your books. I always tell people to walk into a brick-and-mortar bookstore and order the book. Um, uh, Revolution's End is available as well. Um, pick those up. Um you know, yeah, they can find me. They can find me at bradschreiber.com. I've got a website, and click on all the books that I have. I write for Huffington Post, so you, yeah, I got a ten-year archive if you type my name in there. And um, uh, and Facebook, I kind of put all my interviews, in, including this wonderful interview. I'll, thank you. I'll put on my Facebook page. You'll recognize my Facebook page versus the other Brad Schreiber's. I'm the one posing next to a Star Wars creature named Yoda. <laughs> There's a story behind that, but we don't have time for it. Um, <laughs> that's that's awesome. Brad, it's a pleasure. I, you are, this is typical of why I love Thank doing you. this show, because I get to meet the coolest people. And, you know, if you're, if you're ever up in Northeast LA, let's get a cup of coffee, please. Um, Absolutely. Thank you. And thanks for your support. And, and the wonderful interview you did with my, my co-collaborator, Phil Proctor, which was just marvelous. I, I really appreciate it. And in your appreciation of, of that kind of comedy and rock and roll, very dear to my heart. 